Good morning. Extend Christian greetings to each one. It is good to see the Lord's house so well filled with mostly familiar faces and a few new faces to me. But it's a, a joy to be here. You know, I come here and it still feels a bit like home. I have family here. But aren't we so thankful that we have a much more extended family than just our biological families, that we can go to different places, perhaps hundreds of miles or thousands of miles away, and find members of our family, of God's family, God's children, our brothers and sisters, and that's such a joy and encouragement. This morning, I'm led to lead a message on one of the seven deadly sins. You may be familiar with the list. It's not a biblical list, the seven deadly sins. You won't find them listed in a list anywhere in the Bible. It was something that kind of through the ages, actually I believe it was the Catholic Church came up with this list of what they called the seven deadly sins. Lust, greed, sloth, wrath, envy, pride, and gluttony. Sometimes they're called the cardinal sins because all other sins supposedly originate from these. But the one I'm going to look at this morning is gluttony. It is a subject that we don't talk about a whole lot. And yet it is something that I think is very real and that we need to be aware of and that we need a warning on. You know, we read a lot about food in the Bible. At the very beginning of the Bible, back in Genesis chapter 1, verse 29, God told Adam and Eve, he said, I've given you every tree and plant for food. But then isn't it interesting that the first temptation that we read about and the cause of the fall was a temptation dealing with food. It was the food that came off of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There was this one tree whose food and fruit they should not eat. Many, many years later, Christ's first temptation there in the wilderness dealt with food. Satan tempted him to turn these stones into bread. Later in the book of Genesis, God tells Noah that every moving thing will be meat for you, even as the, the vegetables, the green herbs. I've given you meat now as well. And then when you read the Old Testament law, there is very, there's a lot in there about eating and drinking. And it wasn't all bad. If you look at that Old Testament law, there was at least seven feasts that were commanded. Times when the people were supposed to take perhaps their tithe and buy a lamb and feast on it with their friends and their family. When Jesus was on earth, he clearly did not have any trouble eating and drinking. 
And the Bible tells us that he was actually accused of being a glutton and a wine-bibber. We know that that was a false accusation. But clearly Jesus did not have trouble with eating, with friends, with family. And he did drink wine, the Bible tells us. He was clearly not an ascetic like John the Baptist who lived in the wilderness and ate honey and wild locusts. Jesus participated in the societal norms of, of eating and fellowshipping together over food. Later in Paul's epistles, he makes it very clear that for a Christian, God's provision of plants and animals for a Christian was wide open. He didn't have the restrictions that so the Jews had on all the clean and the unclean animals. The early church merely asked that Christians not eat blood and things strangled. Finally then, back in Revelation 19, we read about that final feast, the marriage, supper of the Lamb. And so we find food and eating all through the Scripture. I've often thanked God for food that He has created for us. Isn't it wonderful that God made food pleasurable for us? You know, He gave us taste buds. It could be that you would just eat to live, you know, maybe squeeze food out of a toothpaste and put it down, and that would be living. But God gave us an endless variety of foods and different flavors, and it's amazing how sensitive our taste buds and our the way we partake of food is, how you can detect just a tiny little bit of a certain flavor or a certain spice. Uh, your wife will make a new dish for you. And you say, oh, what? There's something in there. I'm trying to figure out. And eventually you might get it or she might tell you what the special ingredient was. And so food itself was something that God created. It was a gift for us. And I believe that the Bible teaches us that we are to enjoy it. In Ecclesiastes 9.7 it's written, go thy way, eat thy bread with joy, and drink thy wine with a merry heart. And so this morning as we look at gluttony, we do not want to decry the blessing that God has given us in food. Gluttony and the sin of gluttony is not merely a sin of eating, or perhaps even of eating a lot. Uh, when we think about the definition of a feast, all these feasts that God told his people to have, don't we think about a feast as a, a big layout of food and really eating and enjoying food? That is a feast, and God commanded certain feasts. I think back with a certain amount of shame back to the time when I was about 17 or 18 and David Bontrager and I went to eat at Sconyers Barbecue. You've probably heard. My brothers bet me that the price of a plantation platter that I couldn't eat the whole thing. 
and I did. But you know, it was that gluttony back then. I'll admit it was uncomfortable later. I was not overweight at the time. It took me many years before my weight started to catch up with me. Gluttony is not just a matter of how much we weigh or even necessarily at times of how much we eat. I read recently uh, about a, a diet called the Dieting Under Stress Diet, and it, it kind of gave a typical first day on the diet. It went something like this. Uh, for breakfast, you're supposed to eat half a grapefruit and a slice of dry whole wheat bread and eight ounces of skim milk. For lunch, you ate four ounces of lean boiled chicken, one cup of steamed spinach, one cup of herbal tea, and one cookie. Afternoon snack, you eat the rest of the cookies in the packet, two pints of Rocky Road ice cream, one jar of hot fudge sundae, nuts, cherries, whipped cream. For supper, you eat two loaves of garlic bread with cheese, a large pizza, two liters of Coke, three Mars bars. The evening snack is an entire frozen cheesecake eaten directly from the freezer. Those of you all who, like myself, have went on diets know what that experience is like. Those of us, especially older ones, who have to carefully watch what we eat may snicker at this diet a bit, but we recognize how our natural flesh and our cravings work. While whether or not we take the extra helping of dessert may be neither here or there, the Bible does not laugh, though, at the sin of gluttony. We do well to remember the verse in Proverbs 23. When you sit to dine with a ruler, note well what is before you and put a knife to your throat if you are given to gluttony. And so I want to think about the sin of gluttony a bit more this morning and figure out what it is about gluttony and eating as a glutton that the Bible warns us about. So I want to look at three different passages in the Bible that I think demonstrate what gluttony is and the concern with gluttony. And then I want to look at, I think, a more detailed definition and how we can combat it. So first of all, if you would, for the first passage, I would like to consider, turn with me to Amos chapter 6. Amos is one of those short books back there that's easy to page over. Comes after Joel and before Obadiah. Amos chapter 6. And I would like to read verses 1 to 6. Amos 6, 1. Woe to you who are at ease in Zion and trust in Mount Samaria, notable persons in the chief nation to whom the house of Israel comes. Go over to Kalna and see, and from there go to Hamath the great, and then go down to Gath of the Philistines. Are you better than these kingdoms? Or is their territory greater than your territory? Woe to you who put far off the day of doom, who cause the seat of violence to come near, who lie on beds of ivory, 
Stretch out on your couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall. Who sing idly to the sound of stringed instruments and invent for yourselves musical instruments like David. Who drink wine from bowls and anoint yourselves with the best ointments, but are not grieved for the affliction of Joseph. Amos is a prophet from the southern kingdom of Judah, and he's prophesying here to the northern kingdom of Israel. At this time period, uh, the nation or the kingdom of Israel, the northern kingdom, was under the rule of Jeroboam II. And under Jeroboam II's reign, he had a big long reign. He was one of the longer reigned kings. There was peace with the southern kingdom of Judah, largely seemingly peace with the nations around them. Uh, it seemed like there was no immediate threat from Assyria, who would later come in and, of course, carry Israel away into captivity. Uh, it's thought that perhaps uh, this time period came after Jonah's preaching to Nineveh and the repentance that Nineveh had. And so perhaps this is the time period resulting from peace, from Assyria's repentance. But Amos has this scathing um, passage here, prophecy. He goes on from the verses that I read and details out the punishment that God was going to bring to them. He tells them they'll go into bondage. They'll be torn out of their homeland. You read on in verse 7. Therefore they shall now go captive as the first of the captives, and those who recline at banquet shall be removed. The Lord God has sworn by himself, the Lord God of hosts says, I abhor the pride of Jacob and hate his palaces. Therefore I will deliver up the city and all that is in it. So why was this judgment being pronounced against the kingdom of Israel when things seemed to be going well? Why was God pronouncing this judgment on them? Was there anything wrong with them eating a lamb from their flock or a calf from their own herd? Is there anything wrong with sleeping in a nice bed or singing with a little instrumental music as it talks about or with a hot bath with some fancy soap or bathing salts or something of that nature. Well, no, there's nothing wrong with those things in itself. And themselves, none of these things were wrong. The food they were eating was not wrong in itself. But why was God's judgment coming on them? And I think the answer is found there at the bottom part of verse 6. They had all these things that they were focusing on. These things that they were enjoying, but they weren't taking a thought, it said, for the affliction of Joseph. Even though there in the kingdom of Israel, things seemed to be going well, there was relatively peace. As you read the book of Amos, we see that God knew that things were not going well there in Israel. God says that they were disregarding the poor who were among them. They weren't paying attention to the spiritual deprivation. People weren't looking to God anymore. They were looking to their material things. 
They were not given justice to the poor and the needy. There was this sin and departure for God all around them, and yet it didn't grieve their hearts. They were living it up. They were enjoying the good food and the pleasures that evidently came with the prosperity of the time. And so that, I think, gives us a glimpse into the sin of gluttony. It's where the focus is. Let's, let's turn on back now to Luke chapter 16 for a second passage. None of these passages, you may notice, use the word gluttony at all. And yet I believe that they demonstrate. I'd like to read Luke chapter 16, verses 19 to 25. Jesus' teaching, speaking here, says, There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. And so it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and you are tormented. All of us are familiar with this story. But have you ever asked yourself, what did the rich man do to end up in hell as he did? You know, we don't know a lot of the story around this. I don't know for sure if Jesus was telling a parable here or if he was recounting an actual story. He doesn't say that it was like this. But we only have this story, and yet we see that he was being judged. And perhaps you can ask, what, you know, what did he do? Was he a cheat? Was he a robber? Did he kill people for profit? Perhaps he cheated Lazarus out of an inheritance. You know, we like to think that he did some of these things, but the story really only tells us one thing, one clue, and it's found there in verse 25. It almost seems from what Abraham told him that there was some kind of a cosmic scale that was going to even up the score. Surely God wouldn't condemn this man to hell just because he had been blessed with plenty and Lazarus with little. I believe that we must conclude that the rich man was gluttonously ambivalent to the needs of the poor man just outside of his door or perhaps even under his table. Perhaps there was nothing wrong in particular with the good things that he had, but I believe that God judged him because he was so distracted by his sumptuous living that he couldn't see the needs 
that were all around him, in particular right by his door. The very needs that distressed God the Father back in this time of Amos, the poor being mistreated, was the same thing that distressed the Father here and today. And the thing that calls out for us to demonstrate his love. And yet we see that this rich man seemingly was distracted by the good things of life. The things that we thank God for and that we consider blessings. And yet they distracted him from the things that matter to God. And then for a third example, we could turn back to Genesis chapter 25. I don't think I'm going to read this story. It is the story of Esau and Jacob. Um, we're all very familiar with this story, how that Esau was out hunting. And he came back and he thought he was just ravenously hungry. Those of you... Mothers who have children know how children are when they get home from school. I'm starving. Have you ever heard that? Just starving. I try to assure my children that they don't know what starving is up to this point. But Esau came back from hunting and he was starving. I mean, it was just, he, he was ready to drop over seemingly in his mind. And he saw this wonderful soup or gruel or whatever it was that Jacob had cooked up there on the fire. And he wanted it. And the Bible tells us that he was willing to trade his birthright for a mess of pottage. In this story, the only thing that mattered to Esau was his immediate need, his craving, his desire and Esau was willing to trade so much of his future for just that small momentary pleasure. I don't know how much of that soup Esau ate, whether he was a glutton in the way we normally use the term or not, whether he stuffed himself with it. But I believe that he fulfilled what the Bible thinks of when it's talking about gluttony that the food, the pleasure, the cravings that come from it were worth more to him than the things of much more lasting significance. Now I'd like to read a definition that I found of Paul Matthews. I'm not familiar with the man, but I read a definition that he came up with of gluttony that I thought fits well with these passages and I believe the Bible's understanding of gluttony. He defines gluttony as a lack of faith in God that expresses itself through excess and expects total satisfaction from some idol of choice at the expense of community, responsibility, and trusting worship of God. Just read back to that. A lack of faith in God that expresses itself through excess and expects total satisfaction from some idol of choice at the expense of community, responsibility, and trusting worship of God. And he goes on, at its root, gluttony says, 
My desires should be met right now by whatever I crave. Gluttony is the suicide of self-control. Instead of trusting in God's goodness and sufficiency, the glutton tries to seize satisfaction apart from God for desires he think belong to him. So if we use this definition, you can see that gluttony can actually apply to more than just food. Just like that passage back in Amos that we read about resting on the sumptuous beds and listening to the pretty music and so forth and so on. Our desire for more and more wealth and possessions is a form of gluttony, especially when it's focused on ourselves and not God's kingdom. But I do also want to remember that I think the primary meaning of gluttony is dealing with overindulgence in food. Now my sermon so often step on my own toes the most. And I recognize in my heart that the excess weight that I carry around with me is only an outward sign that food has too big of a place in my life at times. Gluttony is often a form of addiction where we know that we shouldn't, we really don't want to. And we know that we're eating not from hunger but from habit or some other compulsion and yet we go on and we follow our craving and our compulsion anyway. I ask a question here this morning. Is there anything wrong with being a foodie? Have you ever heard that term? Somebody described as a foodie? Uh, sometimes it's, it's seen as almost a badge of honor. You know, I really appreciate good food. Most of us do. I know a few people from my experience that just say they don't enjoy eating at all. But most of us enjoy good food. Is there anything wrong with being a foodie? Somebody that really takes particular care and enjoys taking a lot of time to prepare a really impressive dish or has to make it just the right way, cooked to just the perfect temperature and slow cooked all night long, you know, over a certain type of wood smoke or you get the idea. The definition of a foodie, which is actually in the dictionary, is a person having an avid interest in the latest food fads. I don't think it is wrong for us to enjoy the good things that God has given us. At the same time, we need to be careful that being a foodie does not take the place of other things that we should be caring more about. Do we seek and serve God with the same energy that we pursue fine food? The Bible says that where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Is the high point of your day your meal times? Or is it your spiritual bread time? And I'll admit this question challenges me. I do really look forward to meal times. I derive a considerable amount of pleasure and energy from eating. Uh, not just a couple of weeks ago, I was talking to Tom Peachy. We both have to really watch our weight. and We were talking, and I told him, I said, you know, a restrictive diet, you know, I know it's what I need to do, but I said it just takes so much of the joy out of life. I don't know if y'all can relate to that or not, but it's, you know, those times when I'm doing what I know I should, I, I, I feel like I'm missing out on something. So where is our joy coming from? 
I hope we get much greater joy from seeking the Lord than seeking food. I'm reminded of what Jesus said in one of our Sunday school lessons a number of weeks ago, that passage there, uh, I believe it was where he was ministering to the woman at the well. And right at the end of that passage, uh, the disciples came to him and he said, well, you, you need to eat. You need to eat, Jesus. And he says, oh, no, no. He says, you don't realize. He said, I have food that you don't know of. He said, my food is to do the will of my father. That's where he got his sustenance and his blessing. Now, I think that is a good uh, lesson for us. A few questions that we may ask ourselves. Do I eat because I'm hungry or just for the pleasure of the experience? Do I find myself eating in ways that I don't want to just to satisfy a craving? Do I have at least equal desire and interest in seeking God as I do food? Do my eating habits deprive other people? Cost, the time, health, perhaps. Am I in control of my eating or does it sometimes seem to control me? These are questions that we can each ask ourselves. I don't care if you are skinny as a rail or if you have more weight than you need. You can ask yourself these questions. These are questions that can apply to each of us. And if not in your eating, in other areas of life. I believe it's a personal evaluation. None of us the entire picture of another person. Excess weight does not automatically mean a glutton. There are many different factors that relate and contribute to our weight. Most of you who are older know that physical changes that accompany aging make it much more difficult to control weight when you're 50 than when you're 16. And so this morning, don't judge another man's servant. Look at yourself. Do not just consider your BMI and instead consider the place that food has in your life or other areas of pleasure that we take. So what is the solution for gluttony? Our typical response is to work on our self-control. We come up with a new diet. We're going to do it this way. We're going to do that. And we're just going to stick to this thing. The contrasting good that does seem to be the opposite of gluttony is actually temperance or self-control. And of course, that is a character trait that we all need to continue to work on. Paul himself said in 1 Corinthians 9, 27, But I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. And so self-control Temperance is something that we do need to develop in each of our lives and experiences. And yet, I wonder if an emphasis on self-control alone can solve a gluttony problem. Is it possible that the root problem is not a lack of self-control, but more of a heart issue? Are we looking for satisfaction in the wrong places? In that passage from Amos, the problem was not so much what Israel was doing, but was an issue of what they did not care about. 
Perhaps the ultimate solution to gluttony is not a surface work of self-control, but a real heart search for God and for His will. And when our desires and our dreams and our aspirations line up with God, then perhaps gluttony will fade away. And again, I'm reminded of what Jesus said there, that my food is to do the will of Him that sent me. Perhaps the ultimate battle against gluttony is a fast. And not just a food fast where we deprive ourselves of our cravings, but a fast of searching for God. The Bible is clear that fasting gives tremendous advantage in seeking God. Uh, I'll read some verses here from Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2, I'm going to read 18 to 22. The disciples of John and the Pharisees were fasting. And then they came and said to him, Why do the disciples of John and of the Pharisees fast? But your disciples do not fast. And Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. So Jesus indicates that his disciples weren't fasting because he was there with them. But when he would leave, that they would fast in search of him. And I believe that when we fast, that should be our ultimate desire. Not that we step on the scales every morning and every evening and see how our fast is going. But our fast should be a time of seeking God and seeking his will. It's a spiritual discipline for a spiritual benefit. In all the biblical examples that we have of fasting, I don't believe there's a single fast mentioned where the primary intention was weight loss. It was a spiritual discipline for a spiritual benefit. And we see that, I'd like to consider just a little bit, the example of Daniel and his friends. Uh, back in Daniel chapter 1, if you want to turn to it, It's a familiar story. I'm going to go ahead and read chapter 1, verses 8 to 17. We read in the earlier verses here how Daniel and his friends were carried away into Babylon as captives and picked out for this special training in the king's palace. But starting in verse 8, Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. And therefore he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Now God had brought Daniel into the favor and goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who has appointed your food and drink. For why should he see your faces looking worse than the young men who are your age? Then you would endanger my head before the king. So Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had set over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please, test your servants for ten days, and let them give us vegetables to eat, and water to drink, and then let our appearance be examined before you. 
and the appearance of the young men who eat the portion of the king's delicacies, and as you see fit, so deal with your servants. So he consented with them in this matter and tested them ten days. And at the end of ten days, their features appeared better and fatter in flesh than all the young men who ate the portion of the king's delicacies. Thus the steward took away their portion of the delicacies and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. And as for these young, four young men, God gave them knowledge and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. It used to be when I looked at this passage that I thought that Daniel refused the king's food because it would have went against the Old Testament law. You know, the Old Testament prohibitions against pork and other unclean foods. And perhaps there was some of that. But the Babylonian kings were known for putting on huge and lavish feasts. Surely there would have been food on the banquet table that would not have went against the Old Testament law. Food from clean animals that he could have picked from. The Old Testament did not prohibit wine. Could he not have partaken of that? Why did Daniel refuse this? says he purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself. I believe that Daniel recognized the danger of gluttony here in the king's palace where food was plentiful and all kinds of dainties were available to him. And he recognized that not just eating the clean food or eating unclean food was a danger to him, but that there was very much danger of gluttony, of allowing the opulence there in the king's palace to pull him away from God. And so he asked to instead be given vegetables and water. We don't see that Daniel necessarily held himself to the same standard all through his life. Uh, he did here. But later on, we see in the book of Daniel in chapter 10, Daniel is writing, and he says, In those days I, Daniel, was mourning three full weeks. I ate no pleasant food, no meat or wine came into my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all till three whole weeks were filled. And so it seems to indicate that he had, going back to a, a broader diet at some point, um, when he did not no longer see the danger that there was here in the king's palace. But even later, he was willing to forgo those things in his search for the Lord and in his search for God's will. Daniel was always willing to subjugate his physical desires to the spiritual benefit. And so that's my challenge for myself this morning and for each of you. If you search your heart and find that gluttony is a problem, commit yourself to search, first of all, for that deeper relationship with God, to care about the things that God cares about, and to consider a fast of some kind, whether it's a Daniel fast or whatever you feel called to. And don't look at the fast as a means of losing weight. 
I would recommend not even looking at the scales, but as a means of growing healthier in our walk with God. You know, we spend a lot of time eating, and again, I'm not saying that is all wrong. I believe there's real value in fellowship over food. It can bring people together. But when we think about the amount of time that we spend eating, do we spend a commensurate amount of time looking for and searching for and eating our spiritual food? Perhaps we need to be willing to use some of the time that we normally spend on preparation or eating and instead put that into our Bible reading, meditation, and prayer. For a final challenge, I'm going to read Philippians 3, verses 17 to 21. Contrast these verses with a glutton. Philippians 3, 17 to 21. Brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. For many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. May that be each of our testimony this morning.